Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and this is NPR News. Thanks for joining us today. The Spring Member Drive continues here at NPR. Be sure to make that donation at nprnews.org or by calling us at 800-227-2811. So this hour, we are going to talk about farmers and how Minnesota's agriculture industry can adapt to climate change and how this crisis is affecting this very important industry in our state. We know parts of Minnesota experience flooding. Other parts have had to deal with drought. We also saw a lot of snow this winter. It's tough to run a business dependent on unpredictable weather, and that is exactly what farmers around Minnesota are doing this season and have been for years. Years. Joining me now to talk about this is climate expert Heidi Roop. She's the director of the University of Minnesota Climate Adaptation Partnership. She's also an assistant professor of climate science and an extension specialist for climate science and adaptation at the University of Minnesota. And you may know she's the author of the recently released book, The Climate Action Handbook, a visual guide to 100 climate solutions for everyone. Welcome back to the program, Heidi. Good morning. Hi. As as I mentioned, yeah, we've had some a little bit of everything in recent months in Minnesota. Drought, flooding, lots of snow over the winter. Is this what climate change looks like in Minnesota? That's a great question and one I, I'm frequently getting. Uh, so as a climate scientist, we, we tend to not attribute a single season or experience or weather event to climate change. But what we can say is that I think these are sort of the fingerprints of climate change. We expect warmer, wetter winters, um, this oscillation between sort of the wet and the dry. Um, we know that over the last 70 years across the Midwest, our wet extremes have increased in magnitude. Our dry extremes have largely remained the same. But what's interesting is that we're transitioning between these wet and dry extremes more quickly and more frequently. And we see that across the greater Midwest region. And our winter was sort of an example of this where we had we broke all time snow records in places like Duluth and a few other parts across the state. Twin Cities, third snowiest winter. We also had lots of freeze and thaw. I hear a lot about potholes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hear still a lot of potholes, right? Oh, yeah. My car still thumps around those <laughs> potholes. Um, and so we see, you know, that that's an example of sort of the impacts that stem from um, these these changing seasons. And yes, we've had snowy seasons in the past and rainy winters in the past, um, but we really are seeing the fingerprints of climate change um, mm-hmm. over the recent decades um, as we work. We live through what is, quite frankly, a much warmer Minnesota, and our winters are warming faster than any season. Um, and we have pronounced warming in, in those those low, low temperatures, those cold, cold days. Um, they're about seven degrees Fahrenheit warmer in the northern reaches of the state than they were in the late 1800s. Wow. So as we talk about impact and look at impact, uh, how are you seeing climate change affect the state's agricultural industry? What's your understanding of the big challenges that farmers uh, in Minnesota are facing? Great question. So you know, there's all sorts of challenges that emerge when we think about um, just understanding how to manage near-term risk and change, right? I think we hear a lot that the agricultural sector broadly um, is is very adaptive. They're risk managers. Um, They're very attuned to near-term, managing those near-term risks, so those short-term forecasts. I think a lot about how do we um, position the agricultural sector and all sorts of sectors across the state and communities to be thinking in a proactive way about 
longer term risk management, sort of those those experiences of a warmer world we maybe have not yet have not yet emerged, um, maybe those dry, dry summers we expect to come in the future. But we know that these types of wet seasons, for example, they can delay workdays um, when we actually get to get um, crops in soil, right? And we start to, to start the growing season. One you know, interesting thing is actually we've seen our growing season lengthen by about two weeks since the eight to the 1950s. Um, so we're, there's some good news there too, um, but we know that this can impact sort of what you grow, when you grow, the type of you know, productivity is a big thing. We're thinking about how, when do you apply inputs to the system um, as we get later in the season, thinking about impacts on harvest and when do you do that soil moisture to, you know, too much, too little. Um, there's all sorts of, of challenges that emerge when we think about this um, sort of increased volatility in the system, less predictability as we mm-hmm. move between these wet and dry extremes. And what about pests and parasites? You know, has there been some very, you know, obvious changes to that because of climate change? Great observation. Yes, we, the the uh, what we expect and we're already seeing increased disease and pest pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, that's true not only for, for crops but and also animal um, agriculture, but also humans and our human health. Um, we ourselves are at increased risk um, and our forests are also experiencing the consequences of a warmer world and the pest and disease pressure um, that are emergent from that. And so what needs to be done or what can be done to manage and maybe adapt to climate change um, in Minnesota right now that would be beneficial to the farming industry? Great, great question. So I think, so we just talked about a lot of the sort of physical impacts. I think we also, and we sort of maybe disconnected those from humans. So, right, we also have to think that people um, are at the heart of producing food and feeding the world. So we also, as we think about not only the impacts of a warmer world, um, we have to think about health risks and other things for our agricultural communities and broadly. Um, so just want to make sure we, we put that in the conversation here as we think about how do we adapt, understanding the conditions and the risks we're going to face, um, just thinking more thoughtfully, critically about what those are, meaning we need to also think about what crop species um, are going to be most viable. How do we um, start to increase things like alternative cover crop species um, so that we're keeping our soil intact and investing also in soil health, which is um, a, a double climate win because it works to re- uh, sequester carbon. Um, so we're storing carbon rather than producing it, which prevents the problem of climate change from getting worse, while we're also increasing or enhancing the resilience of the system. Um, healthy soils can absorb more moisture. So in our wetter Minnesota. Um, That's great for absorbing that extra rainfall. It also prevents erosion, can improve water quality. So there are a lot of things. The agricultural sector is an incredible opportunity for climate solutions, both on the mitigation and the adaptation side, um, because they can, they build resilience. And so there's there's a lot of opportunity and, and actually a lot of leadership already occurring in the agricultural space. So things like soil health, alternative crops, um, thinking about worker health, um, agroforestry practices. Um, there's an abundance of adaptation options. And we're really lucky to be in a region, not only with leadership stemming from places like the University of Minnesota, um, our Farmers Union, our Farmers Bureau. There are folks really thinking about increasingly, I hear the words climate change and almost every conversation. Um, but we also have organizations like the um, USDA Midwest Climate Hub that serve as really critical partners, not only in providing information and resources for near-term risk management, right, seasonal management of of climate, of weather, um, as well as that long-term proactive thinking about 
what does the future of agriculture look like? Um, where is it going to be the best um, geography for planting corn? Uh, what are the stresses that are going to emerge for, for soy and sugar beets and turkeys, right? How do we start to think about what does agriculture look like in the future? How is it sustainable? And how do we use it as both a mitigation and adaptation solution. So it's encouraging to hear that a lot of the, the solutions are known. Um, so it, it's really about having these conversations to make sure that people uh, know that. And, you know, that kind of, you know, brings me to the book that you wrote. I want to hear more about your book. Um, why did you want to write the Climate Action Handbook? So, you know, scientists like myself and my colleagues, we've been sort of screaming at off the rooftops, right, about climate change is a problem, we need to do something, right? And I think we continue to put out these um, incredible reports, uh, sort of continue to refine the science and our understanding. But the main message has remained the same for decades, which is that we need to urgently act and we need to do more. And we need to prevent the problem from getting worse by reducing the combustion of fossil fuels, right, that produces the, the warming that we're experiencing and the impacts that stem from it. And we also need to prepare for the changes we've set in motion. And I felt that not only were we not doing enough as a climate science community, but I myself as a climate scientist continued to talk about the problem. But when I was asked the same question at the end of every talk, conversation, <laughs> you na- doesn't matter who, it was the same question. Heidi, so what can I do? And I didn't feel like I had the answer to that question that welcomed enough people in that met people where they are, were, acknowledged what sorts of the diversity of resources and perspectives and expertise we can all bring to bear on the really rich solution space. And so the book was my learning journey, not only so I could better answer that question when people asked, but so I could also more meaningfully engage in climate action myself um, and give my per- myself permission to think about and what constitutes a climate solution in a different way um, beyond really important things like solar panels and electric vehicles. They are critically part of the solution, but they are not available and accessible to everyone. Mm-hmm. And they are not the only things that are meaningful for impact in the context of climate action. And so the book is a, is a, a welcome mat um, for people either deeply engaged in climate work or just curious about how they might leverage their strengths, passions, and, um, and, and interest to be part of the solution. And, and how do you, so could you give us some examples? What are a few meaningful changes that individuals um, can, can create? Or what, what can we be doing that you mention in your handbook to give people a sense of what they'll find? Oh, my goodness. You're asking me to pick one of my, <laughs> out of a hundred. I don't know if I could do that. Um, I think, you know, so I think starting, I, I started to think this about this really as a climate solutions journey. Um, And that's really unique to each and every one of us. And there's no wrong way to go about a journey, right? You might have um, different paths you walk down and and that's okay. And you might sort of turn around and start over. And and as I think about my own solutions journey, I think the first thing is really making sure that you're centering this work and your strengths and your passions. So find out what you're good at. Who do you like to be in community with? Um, Those are places where we can start to engage in climate solutions. Uh, We have to think about our individual actions. Those, I do feel firmly, really do matter. Um, But we have to do more than our individual actions. So thinking about our travel and our work, um, where does energy come from in our homes? What are the consumer choices we make every day? Like, how quickly do you really need that Amazon package to show up on your doorstep? Slowing down the delivery window could reduce emissions by up to 180%. So 
there are opportunities for us all to build sort of climate thinking into the way we walk through the world. I think that's really important. So when every, we already spoke, every step, yeah, every decision that we make, there can be a component every decision. of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So those individual actions matter. And we spoke just about sort of adaptation and this idea that we have to prepare. We also have to prepare our communities. So think about your individual role, your collect, the ways you commit to your community and engage with your, that can be your neighborhood. That could be a faith group. How do you think about your how you're going to respond in a moment of crisis? Are you well equipped to support your community? How is your community planning for climate change? That is the first step mm-hmm. towards building that beautiful world we want. And then third, make sure we really are influencing systems change. One way we do that is vote. And one another way we do that meaningfully is in, uh, engage with our elected leaders. And we have a lot of elected leaders in the state of Minnesota right now who are making decisions about how well prepared we are and how well equipped and financed our communities will be to, pre- to prevent and prepare for climate change. So engaging civically is a really critical part of the solution as well. Well, um, you've given me uh, yet another reason to go get this book. Uh, Heidi Roop is <laughs> the author of the recently released book, The Climate Action Handbook. She's also the director of the Minnesota Climate Adaptation Partnership and an assistant professor of climate science at the University of Minnesota. We're so happy to have you here doing this work uh, in our state. Heidi, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. I couldn't imagine a better place to call home. Support comes from Burst Travel, celebrating 67 years of service to travelers through 16 Upper Midwest locations, including Baxter, Marshall, and St. Cloud. Details on travel packages are available online at BurstTravel.com. Back to our conversation about how Minnesota farmers are feeling the effects of climate change. Our state's food producers have told the Minnesota Farmers Union that climate resiliency is their most pressing issue right now. That's why tomorrow, the Farmers Union is launching its first of a series of agriculture and climate conversations. The first ever event will include farmers from Hennepin, Ramsey, and Washington counties. And joining us right now is Ariel Kagan. Ariel is the Climate and Working Lands Program Director with the Minnesota Farmers Union, and her work involves supporting farmers with climate resilience and policy development. Good morning to you, Ariel. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Hi. So what do you make of what we're seeing with uh, changing weather patterns and climate change in Minnesota as it relates to farming? Uh, I know it's a frequent topic of conversation among farmers. What are some of the most common things that you hear? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad you had uh, Heidi on earlier because she really sort of uh, covered a lot of the main things. You know, we're seeing more frequent and extreme uh, precipitation events. We're seeing drought, flood, snowfall. And while none of those can be necessarily directly connected to climate change, you know, we we are getting the sense that things are changing and that the future won't look like the past. So in uh, our state, this past couple of years, we saw historic drought that obviously has a huge impact on our farmers. We also saw with the snowfall this year, uh, things like barn collapses and other Mm. sort of extreme infrastructure issues, fencing and things that you rely on were uh, really put to the test with with lots of snowfall. So it's an issue uh, we're hearing about a lot from our members. And as you said, you know, our members are a grassroots organization uh, and climate resiliency was identified as one of the key priorities for us to work on because of that. Uh, And so we're really excited to start hearing uh, more in a more structured way about what that means that with these listening sessions we're going to host. So I'm going to ask you for a definition of a term. When, when you say climate resilience, climate resiliency, what, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, you know, like resiliency of being able to bounce back is really what I think mm. when I think of that term. So mm-hmm. uh, 
we heard about soil health and how important that is for maintaining moisture in the soil and also handling heavy rainfall. You know, healthy soil is like a sponge, so it can accept a lot of more water and then it can also release water over time. So when we're thinking about working with both drought and flood conditions uh, in our agricultural and working lands, soil health becomes really important so that farmers can bounce back from these extreme weather events. Mm. So what are you hoping to hear um, tomorrow from farmers uh, here in central Minnesota who plan to attend uh, the union's uh, climate conversation? I feel like you're getting in my space. You're, you're hosting your own conversations. I like this, Ariel. True, true. <laughs> uh, big shoes to live up to here. But, uh, you know, we're hoping... Farmers are on the front lines of the climate crisis. And so uh, we've, you know, whenever I go out and talk to folks, I hear about how they're being impacted and what they're concerned about and what they wish that decision makers knew uh, and were thinking about. And, uh, you know, that long term planning is so important. So we're hoping to uh, hear what some of the issues are, what people want to see in our policy going forward. Uh, and where we have opportunities to make sure that farmers at, are at the center of conversations about solutions that are going to affect our, our working lands. And so what happens with the information that you're gathering? I'm, I'm envisioning people taking notes. Um, what will you do as a result of these, uh, you know, hosting these climate change sessions? Where is this information going? Yeah, I'm sure that there will be some post-it notes involved. So uh, we're, we're aiming to write a report. Uh, we'll have hopefully some preliminary results available by mid mid to late summer. And then we're, uh, we'll put together a more extensive report that we hope to have out in the winter months of the, the coming winter. So that will really help to synthesize what we hear uh, and identify some themes and key resources for farmers going forward. And, you know, we're in the middle of state policy development around soil health and climate change and agriculture. And it's also a farm bill year at the federal level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we uh, Tomorrow is our first one of these meetings here uh, at our office in St. Paul, and folks can find the information and come if they are interested in uh, by visiting our website and getting the details. But we're also having additional events uh, in June. We've got two scheduled, one in Thief River Falls and one up in St. Louis County at the Cook Community Center. So those are all on our website as well. And Ariel, what can you tell us about... Um money and the business of farming. What have you heard so far about how climate change is affecting farmers' businesses and, and their finan- their finances? Yeah, you know, it's, it's all connected. So especially when you're growing commodities, corn and soy, which we grow a lot of in Minnesota, uh, those are global markets. So it's not just what's happening to the climate in Minnesota, but it's what's happening in the climate all around the world and, you know, storms and fires and droughts uh, and conflict and political unrest can all affect the prices that farmers are receiving in those commodity markets. And so we're certainly thinking about, you know, the the local and what's going on in Minnesota for our farmers here, but also the global and and how do we think about this on a global level. Um, In addition to those sort of market mechanisms, we're seeing huge historic investments from the federal government into climate smart agriculture. And so uh, we're sort of at the precipice of this new era of investment. We've got $3.1 billion from the Partnership for Climate Smart Commodity Program that the USDA has started. And then we've also got an additional $20 billion from the Inflation Reduction Act that is uh, targeted at climate smart practices. So uh, I'm I'm really excited to see what's going to happen in the coming years with those dollars and what that means for family farms in Minnesota and also 
you know, hoping that that really makes some impact on our landscape and that we will in a few years be able to say that we're more resilient to the changing climate than we are right now. You mentioned um, soybeans and uh, corn production in Minnesota. Uh, what are you hearing about how the that's going right now in terms of the spring planting season or what the expectations uh, are based on the weather we've had this past winter and so far this spring? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think uh, folks were a little nervous that we were having such a late, uh, late and wet spring that it would sort of delay planting. Right now, you know, I was down in Fillmore County on Friday and saw lots of planters out in the field. Uh, I know that this is the time of year when farmers are really ready to get outside. It's been a long mm-hmm. winter. And uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful that we're on track. And I think I think uh, thus far, it's looking like it's going to be a and, pretty good season. And there's a big difference, too, between what it means uh, to farm in northern Minnesota compared to southern Minnesota. There's a great difference. True. Yeah. Fillmore mm-hmm. County is right on the border with Iowa. So uh, definitely further south. I do know that further north, there's still some snowpack in parts of northwest Minnesota. So uh, you know, we've got a big state and, and the climate, uh, the weather and climate really differs between north and south. So especially being a statewide organization, Minnesota Farmers Union has farm, farmer members all across the state in every corner. And uh, we hear about all the different things that are happening. You know, Heidi mentioned forests. Uh, that's something we're thinking about, too, with our forests up in northeast Minnesota, especially how climate's going to affect uh, the landscape up there and what that means for farmers uh, and, and landowners up there. So. Uh, yeah, it's it's fun to work in a big state. I think it would probably uh, a little bit easier to get a, a handle on a, a smaller state, but it's good. And so, you know, Ariel, one of the first things you said is that the future is not looking like the past. And so um, that must be very difficult then for, for farmers and, and, you know, union members, union leaders to plan for the future when we, we look at climate change. And so what's like, how do you make plans for the future or what is instrumental in, in creating success, do you think? I think farmers have always been innovating, you know, even just in the past 30 years, agriculture in our state looks completely different than it than it did. And so I have so much uh, hope and excitement for what our farmers are going to be able to figure out with these new changing conditions and new changing market conditions, too. We talked a little bit about global markets, but we're seeing huge demand for products that are grown with more climate smart practices. And so I think that that's a big opportunity for farmers. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things like reduced tillage, strip tilling, no till, uh, cover crops, cash cover crops. Uh, we can do, uh, precision nutrient management. We can do, uh, bringing livestock back in the land. I know we're going to hear from a livestock farmer, uh, after, mm-hmm. after I'm done here. And, mm-hmm. and that's really exciting because I think integrating livestock in a managed way is, uh, so important to soil health, but also really important for things like biodiversity and water quality that uh, are sort of these co-benefits to climate smart uh, practices. So I'm, uh, you know, it's it's a challenge, but I think there's also a lot of opportunity and a lot of hope for, you know, how we can innovate and find new ways of farming that produces Mm. Uh, food, fuel, and fiber for the future while uh, also maintaining our natural resources. Yeah, you sound optimistic, and it sounds like there are many reasons to be optimistic. And um, wishing you well on uh, the events tomorrow and the, these additional sessions, these conversations that you guys are, are starting and taking notes from. Uh, we've been talking with Ariel Kagan, the Climate and Working Lands Program Director with the Minnesota Farmers Union. And you can go to their website, go to MFU 
org to find out when and where the Minnesota Farmers Unions, uh, these sessions about climate change will be happening. Again, the first one happening tomorrow, uh, which will include farmers from Hennepin, Ramsey and Washington counties. Thank you for your time, Ariel. Thank you so much. Programming is supported by the McKnight Foundation, advancing a more just, creative and abundant future where people and planet thrive. Online at McKnight.org. Today, we're talking about how climate change is affecting agriculture in Minnesota. Earlier this hour, we heard from a climate scientist who recently put out a book called The Climate Action Handbook. The author is Heidi Roop from the University of Minnesota. And if you're wondering what you as an individual can do to address climate change, check out that book. Again, the title is The Climate Action Handbook, and it's by Heidi Roop. She's been a guest on our show several times. And we also, just a few minutes ago, we heard from Ariel Kagan with the Minnesota sort of farmers union. And she told us how the union uh, is hosting a series of climate talks with farmers around the state. The first one is tomorrow. Um, And now we're going to hear from a farmer herself. Hannah Bernhardt is with us. And um, Hannah and her family own Medicine Creek Farm, a 160 acre sustainable and regenerative livestock farm in Pine County. And Heidi, I'm going to ask you to to help me with the pronunciation of your town because I can't say it with with, with, uh, confidence. And where are you located? I'm from Finlayson, Minnesota. Finlayson, Minnesota, there in Pine County. Heidi, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Hannah is also the Uh, on the National Farmers Union's Climate Change Policy Advisory Panel. And she's part of the Minnesota Climate and Land Leaders, which is an initiative among landowners that aims to address the climate crisis. Thank you for taking time out of your your busy schedule, Hannah, to join us for a little bit here on NPR. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so you have a livestock farm. Uh, Tell me more about it. What do you have there? We raise um, grass-fed beef and lamb and pastured pork, and we rotationally graze. So, um, you know, we don't do any grain feeds. We're just uh, rotating through our pastures, and everything is pasture-based. Okay, and I use the description uh, regenerative livestock farm. What is regenerative farming, and what does that look like? Uh, well, so regenerative farming is kind of a new term for what's actually really an old way of managing the land, and it's kind of attempting to work with nature instead of fighting against it. And so for us, what that looks like is um, continuous, thing, continuous living cover on our soils in the form of permanent, well-managed pasture. Um, but as Ariel mentioned, for crop farmers, it can look like other practices like cover cropping or no-till using composting or just really diverse crop rotations um, or even planting things like perennial grains like Kernza. Mm -hmm. Um, But the term came about as a way of acknowledging that if what you're starting with is a degraded resource like soil that's eroded or lost its organic matter to years of tillage or maybe has had all of its biological activity killed off by pesticides, then it's not enough to just sustain that soil. We need to actually be regenerating it and actively working to improve our ecosystem. Mm. Hannah, tell me um, personally, how has uh, the climate crisis affected you as a livestock farmer? Uh, Can you tell us some of the the differences that you've noticed over the years due to a change in the climate? Or or what have you uh, had to deal with as far as extreme weather in the last year or so? Yeah, I mean, Ariel already touched on this. We're we're definitely seeing more extreme weather events and just like general unpredictability. 
Um, our first four years farming here, you know, every neighbor said like, we've never, it's never been this wet before. And every year seemed wetter than the previous. And then of course, in the last two years, we were affected by the drought. And so we don't even feel like we've really seen what a normal or average year looks like yet. Mm -hmm. Um, and when we do get precipitation, it doesn't feel like it's a slow, steady rain over the course of several days. It's always these big storms with hail or high winds. Or like several inches of rainfall in a very short period of time. Um, and, you know, like our electric fences have been hit by lightning twice in recent years from crazy thunderstorms. Wow. And then in the winter, it's um, the extreme temperature swings. So like from a polar vortex one week to above freezing the next. And that causes increased stress on the livestock. And we're also seeing that it's actually the warmer, wetter winter weather that is likely contributing to things like more respiratory infections. Wow. And, and with, with drought, um, what's the direct impact of drought? Does that affect what your animals are eating? Well, yeah, and it has an economic impact, too. So not only is there, you know, less forage for the animals to eat, but sometimes we might have to buy hay to supplement. And so that's a, a cost we're mm -hmm. not expecting, um, yeah, out of the ordinary. And um, you use the term stress on the livestock, um, it does sound stressful. And so what's the impact if your livestock is, is stressed? Well, what we worry about is that increased stress will cause, you know, a, a disease to break that might not otherwise. So, you know, we're learning to kind of watch the animals more closely, especially during these extreme swings. Mm -hmm. And also keep an eye out for unusual things like parasite infections earlier in the spring or later in the fall, because the warmer weather seems to be keeping more of those bugs alive. Wow, that's a lot. So the um, so what does the <laughs> the warming climate we've talked about uh, warmers being winters being wetter and warmer? What does that do with with the parasites that you're concerned about as for the livestock that you have? Well, usually there's like a, a period where they go into dormancy and you don't have to worry about them so much anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but because, you know, like with the extreme snowfall this year, it seems like there was a lot of insulation. And so, you know, yeah. we don't know for sure, but we're worried that perhaps more of them survived through the winter. And so you're relatively new to farming. Well, how are you feeling about the future of your business as our climate continues to change? Well, you know... Farmers are inherently susceptible to the weather, and so it's definitely um, unsettling and anxiety-producing, you know, for both those economic reasons and also just the general animal welfare. Um, but the reason that we've chosen to do regenerative agriculture is because we want to build resilience into our operation and also be a part of the solution to climate change, not the problem. And so I'm actually incredibly hopeful because we have no shortage of customers who also care about being a part of the solution. And I think they're choosing to buy from regenerative farmers based on their, those values of animal welfare and care for the environment. Um, you know, and in some ways, I think our policies are lagging behind the will of the public. And so I do also encourage eaters as well as farmers to speak up about the kind of farming they'd like their tax dollars to support. And and I want to get back to... Um to talking about um, soil health, because uh, the previous two guests uh, with the union and our climate expert from the U of M both talked about soil health. So tell us more about why soil health matters and, and what does it mean or look like to, to sustain healthy soil? Yeah, I love talking about soil health. Um, <laughs> so the practice that we do is adaptive rotational grazing, 
And what this is, is a practice that kind of aims to mimic the way that bison would have grazed the tall grass prairie. And, you know, that's what built the incredible amounts of carbon-rich soil that gave the Midwest its productive farmland. Um, And so, you know, Ariel mentioned that um, when you increase the organic matter in your soil, you're increasing the water-holding capacity. I think it's something like for every 1% increase in soil organic matter, your soil can hold an additional 20,000 more gallons of water per acre. And so, yeah, that makes us more resilient. So, you know, we have less flooding um, because the water is not running Mm -hmm. off and it also holds on to more moisture during times of drought. Um, And, you know, really, I think that that's the answer that we need to be focusing more on, whether you're raising livestock or crops um, is focusing on soil health. And and Hannah, tell us, what do you do as a member of the climate organizations that um, you've chosen to be a part of? What are you doing personally to try to, to you know, help with all of this? Um, well, a lot of what we're doing is talking about ways that we can um, promote these soil health practices and help farmers adopt them. You know, sometimes there are barriers to figuring out how to change your practices to do these things. A lot of times there's a bigger investment to transitioning to more regenerative practices. So there are policies that the government could put into place and programs already in existence that if they were better funded um, would help farmers make this transition. Um, You know, the goal of Climate Land Leaders, the organization I'm a part of, is to help landowners transition cropland into pasture for managed grazing or other permanent cover. Um, And I think that's really important because, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily what's being produced, it's how it's being produced, whether that's livestock or crops. Well, hi, Hannah, I do hope you have um, a good spring. How's it going so far uh, as we're about to uh, get into some warmer weather? How would you say the, the, the season is going for you? And, and, and how are you feeling about your situation right now? Um, well, I'm, I am feeling hopeful. You know, it was a really rough winter. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just grateful that things are warming up and the grass is starting to grow. Mm-hmm. And we're about to have, you know, 70 some lambs on the ground in the next oh. three weeks. So oh. I'm just gearing up for that. Right. <laughs> well, we talked to, to you at the right time. Thank you so much. You, you've helped yeah. us a lot with uh, understanding. That is Hannah Bernhardt. And uh, Hannah and her family own Medicine Creek Farm, which is a 160 acre sustainable and regenerative grass fed pork beef and Lamb Farm in Finlayson, which is in Pine County. She's also on the National Farmers Union's Climate Change Policy Advisory Panel and part of Minnesota's Climate Land Leaders, an initiative among landowners that aims to address the climate crisis. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.